You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm one of the assisting pastors here. Our senior pastor is uh, celebrating his 46th anniversary with his dear wife, Karen, this weekend. And so we're excited and blessed for them. And uh, my privilege to get to fill the pulpit for him uh, this special day. Now, we've got men coming forward, I believe, with Bibles. So if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, if you just raise your hand, they will be happy to place one in your hand. And it's turned to our text this morning. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible, please make this Bible a gift from us to you. Uh, The Word of God is critical to life and godliness. Well, we'll be in Matthew 21 this morning, and you're thinking, whoa, Pastor Paul. (laughs) Matthew 20. No, no, the last time you taught, you left us hanging in Ephesians 6, right? (laughs) Come on now. You talked about this spiritual war they were engaged in and the enemy that we have and all of that, and you left us hanging, and we've been waiting to learn about the equipment and the weapons that we've been given for the combat to which we've been called that we might stand against the devil in these last days. Well, that was my intention. (laughs) Had this study done in the books last week, highlighted, ready to go. I sent the text and title to Pastor Tom. He instructed the ladies in the front office to mark all of the Bibles that are passed out this morning. There's a lot of them (laughs) in the text in Ephesians. And on Thursday morning, I came to church and I uh, walked in and ran into one of the other pastors. His name will remain anonymous because I want his reward to be in heaven. And he looked at me and said, Pastor Paul, I just heard your teaching Sunday. I'm so excited about that. You're going to be teaching on Palm Sunday about, you know, the triumphant entry, right? I go, <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. I mean, why? <laughs> yeah. So here we are today in Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, looking at the triumphant entry. So I just want to read one verse to kind of to lay the foundation, then we'll pray and get into our text this morning. Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. And Matthew, quoting from Zechariah 9.9, says, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. Well, Lord, this morning we're blessed to be here. Lord, we count it a privilege to be called your people. We recognize that we bring nothing to you except a a messy life, uh, born in sin, inherited a sin nature from our great, great, great grandfather. And Lord, this morning we recognize that we have no righteousness of our own by which we might gain eternity with you. But you have provided a way by the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, that perfect lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And we who have believed upon him have rejoiced that now our names are written in your book of life, that we have been made sons and daughters of the great king on high, and that our eternity is secure. And so, Lord, this morning we come on this very special day to celebrate you and all that you've done for us. And now, having worshiped, we pray that you would teach us from your word. Father, we pray that if we need encouragement, that we'd receive it today. If correction is what we need, we pray that we would be open to hear it, to receive it, and respond appropriately. 
And Father, if there's anyone here this morning, whether on campus or watching online, who does not yet know you, we pray that today would be the day that they surrender their selves, that bend the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords and ask Jesus to become the Savior and the King of their lives. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, of course, as I already, <clears throat> already indicated, is the anniversary of the day that Jesus, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record for us, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the excitement and the worship of the crowds that had gathered for Passover. It begins his final week during his earthly ministry before his crucifixion. And traditionally, the church calls this day Palm Sunday, a reference to John's gospel, chapter 12, verse 13, in which John indicates it was palm branches that the people cut down and began to wave towards Jesus. But alternately, the church also calls it the triumphant entry, because on this day, Jesus entered Jerusalem to the enthusiastic welcome of the crowds who proclaimed him to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. And in context, we recognize from Matthew chapter 20 that the group that was calling out his praise, who were worshiping him and acknowledging him as king, were probably the same Passover pilgrims that had been traveling on the road with him through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem that had seen the amazing miracle that he did when he healed the two blind men in the city. And so now those same pilgrims, having seen the power and the might that was working through Jesus Christ, they now celebrate and welcome him as, into Jerusalem as their king. However, we know, at least those of us who have been around the Bible for any length of time, the rest of the story. And that is that the same city that here in Matthew chapter 21 received him and rejoiced over him as their long-awaited king, just a week later was crying out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. To which Pilate responded, shall I crucify the king? And in great hypocrisy, the people responded, we have no king but Caesar. But fortunately, the story doesn't end there. We know that after Jesus was beaten and after he was crucified and after he died, that he was buried for three days and after three days rose victoriously from the dead, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. And then for 40 days he appeared to his disciples and those who had followed him by many infallible proofs over 40 days and then ascended to heaven where this morning he is, is interceding for you and I as our great high priest, our advocate before the throne of the Father and from which we anticipate his soon return. When Jesus returns, he will enter Jerusalem in much the same way that he did that first Palm Sunday that triumphant entry that took place 2,000 years ago. But with an important distinction. When Jesus came the first time on that triumphant entry that we celebrate today, he came in peace to reconcile God and man through the perfect sacrifice of his life. But the next time that he comes back at the end of the tribulation period, that second advent, when he comes back to Jerusalem again, he doesn't come in peace but in judgment and to make war upon the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all those who have followed him and to bring an end to wickedness and to reward those who have anticipated him and love him and have submitted to him. And it reminds us that Jesus Christ comes to every person, every heart, every city twice, first with an offer of peace, Peace with God the Father through Jesus Christ by which a person can be born again, become a new creation in Christ. The old sins passed away, all things made new, and their name written in the Lamb's book of life to enjoy eternity with him forever. 
But for those who reject him, Jesus is coming a second time, not in peace, but in judgment. Judgment and condemnation for having rejected the peace that he offered through the gift of salvation. And so this morning, we remember the psalmist who writes concerning the Lord's second coming. He says, kiss the son, lest he be angry with with you in the way, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. But blessed are those who trust in him. Well, this morning what I want to do is I want to look back at that first triumphant entry and then look ahead to the second triumphant entry and compare and contrast them because both of them are instructive to us. It will be a great encouragement to those of you who already believe in Jesus Christ and I hope an exhortation to those of you who do not yet believe in him to recognize that he is your one way of escape from eternal condemnation. And so as we look again at these two events in the past and what's predictive of the future, I pray that you're blessed this morning. Well, we begin in verse one of chapter 21 in Matthew's gospel, and we know where it is from which Jesus began his triumphant entry 2,000 years ago. Matthew tells us, now when they drew near Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage at the notice, underline and highlight, the Mount of Olives, that Jesus sent two of his disciples. Now we stop there just for a moment to again make note of the fact that the triumph entry began on the Mount of Olives. And it's important that we understand a little context, a little geography, a little history, so we understand the significance of all that's going on because the Mount of Olives plays an important role throughout Bible history and Bible prophecy. Well, the Mount of Olives stands just to the east of Jerusalem. There's a ridge there marked by three different peaks, the Mount of Olives being the one in the middle. And it divides the Judean Uh, excuse me, the barren Judean wilderness to the east from the densely populated and beautiful city of Jerusalem to the west. Again, there's three peaks to the east. There's Mount Scopus, there's the Mount of Offense, and between them is the Mount of Olives. And between the Mount of Olives and uh, Mount Scopus, there's a small, what we call a saddle or valley through which the ancient Roman road, which Jesus and the, and the Passover pilgrims have taken from Jericho through the, uh, the, the wilderness there, up through that little saddle, and then down into the city of Jerusalem. It's called the Mount of Olives because of the extensive olive groves that were there during the first century. Olive groves, by the way, that served the ministry of the priest in the temple. Those olives were harvested, they were pressed, and oil was made, and that oil was significant to all of, the, all of the worship that the priests were involved in in the temple. And then finally, we remember that the Mount of Olives was a favorite place of our Lord to retreat after a busy day of ministry in Jerusalem, where after the hustle and the bustle of the city and ministry and the healing and the teaching and, the, and, the, and all that he was involved in, that he would withdraw there in the cool shade of those olive trees and rest with his disciples that he might be refreshed for another day of ministry. And so we notice Matthew 21, verse 1, that the first triumphant entry, Jesus came from the Mount of Olives. Now again, I want to compare and contrast that to the next triumphant entry at his return. And we know from Scripture that Jesus, when he returns, will begin that journey at the Mount of Olives. I point to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. You might jot that down unless you're really quick and can turn there. And let me read it to you. Zechariah predicts, and in that day, speaking of the end of the tribulation period, he, that is Jesus, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. 
Half of the mountain shall move north and half of it to the south. And so we recall, or excuse me, we, we recognize then that when Jesus comes back the second time, that once again he begins his journey into the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. We have the affirmation of that, by the way, in the book of Acts. You remember in chapter 1 where Jesus ascended into heaven, that he left the disciples standing mouths agape as they watched him move from the, the material world right into the spirit realm of heaven and be received in clouds. And as they stood there, two angels showed up because they were all standing there, not moving, and they reminded them, they said, this same Jesus will return in like manner. In other words, with clouds, with glory, from heaven to the earth, where? To the Mount of Olives. Now, what's interesting is that today, the Orthodox Jews who are anticipating the, the coming of Messiah look to Zechariah 14, verse 4, as a picture and a prophecy of where he will begin his journey into the city of Jerusalem, where he will take the throne of his father David and rule and reign over the earth. Now, you remember that during Jesus' earthly ministry, that the Sanhedrin, those leaders of Israel who were tasked with enforcing the Mosaic law amongst the Jewish people, were also given the responsibility of identifying the Messiah when he would come and then point the people to him that they might worship him and follow him. But we understand from the gospel accounts that the Sanhedrin 2,000 years ago, though some of them actually knew that Jesus was the Messiah, they rejected him anyway. But today, the Orthodox Jewish people, they're looking for Messiah to come. Now, we understand he's already come once. He's coming a second time. They're looking for him to come the first time. Now, what's interesting is that if you follow the history of the Sanhedrin, that after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and then after the dispersion of the Jews in 134 AD, that the Sanhedrin moved from Jerusalem to Tiberias, where it continued to meet until 425 AD, and then finally they disbanded because of persecution and because they had lost hope that the Messiah would ever come again. But in 2004, the Orthodox Jewish people have reconvened the Sanhedrin. Why? They anticipate that Messiah is coming and coming soon. In fact, one of the founding members of the reconvened Sanhedrin, Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri, claimed before his death that God had given him a vision in which the Messiah came to him in a dream and gave him his name. And in 2006, when Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri passed away, he left the name of the Messiah in his last will and testament. But his last will and testament was to be sealed until one year after his death, at which point it would be opened and the name of the coming Messiah would be released. And in 2007, on the anniversary of his death, as his disciples opened his last will and testament, they began to read a poem that he had written in Hebrew and it formed an acrostic that formed the name of the Messiah that appeared to him in the dream. That name in Hebrew, Yehoshua, Joshua, or in Greek, Jesus. <laughs> wow, looking for the coming Messiah and they have his name. The point is that Jesus at his first advent, at that first triumphant entry, he entered Jerusalem leaving from the Mount of Olives. As we've just read in Zechariah 14.4 and affirmed by the angels in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus returns to once again enter Jerusalem, it will begin that triumphant entry on the Mount of Olives. Well, a second interesting correlation and contrast between this first and second triumphant entry is recorded for us in verses 2 through 7, and that is how he enters the city. Look at Matthew 21 again, verse 2. 
Jesus said to his disciples, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her and loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. All this was done, Matthew tells us, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. And here again he quotes Zechariah 9.9. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and they did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. Well, First of all, have you ever kind of wondered as you read this story why strangers (laughs) would allow anyone to take their property? And again, in the first century, a donkey was was of great value. It would be the equivalent of a car that we would have today. In other words, that's how you did your work. That's how you transported goods. That's how you would get back and forth between villages. It would be kind of like if you were sitting on your porch this week listening to the Giants beat the Dodgers... Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't say that. God bless you, Dodger fans. I know there's room in the kingdom for all of us. You know, it's like grace covers. Okay, let's say you're listening to a ball game. Your favorite team is winning. Here comes a complete stranger. They look at the Corvette in your front yard, and they say, hey, bro, the Lord has sent me. You're supposed to give me your Corvette. You go, for sure, dude, and you just toss your keys out there. It's like, whoa, time out. But that was happening right here because Jesus wanted to instruct the disciples and communicate the authority that he possessed as the true king and the Messiah of Israel. Number one, it demonstrates his authority as the rightful king. In other words, we look at the Old Testament and we read about the kings of Israel or the king of any nation, and we recognize that the king has the legal right to requisition any person, any property, anything that he might need for his service. And his servants, those people that, that lived under the ruler and the, the rulership and the authority of the king, their job was to submit and to submit immediately to that authority. And so the disciples understood now that Jesus had the legal authority of the king of Israel. But additionally, it communicates to us his authority over not just Israel, but over all of creation. Matthew tells us that when Jesus sent the disciples to get the animals, that there were two. There was a donkey, the mother, and her, <clears throat> and her colt. That is the, the child, the young donkey. The other gospel writers, specifically Mark and Luke, tell us that Jesus rode on the colt, not the donkey. And the significance of that is this. We might expect Jesus to ride on the donkey, which was tame, which was trained, which was broken for a rider. But a colt, a young donkey, has not yet been broken. And any of you wranglers know that you don't get on a donkey, a mule, or a horse that's unbroken unless you want to get broke. Because they don't like people sitting on them. But when Jesus came to sit on this colt, this fool, it acknowledged that Jesus was his creator, that he was the creator of the universe, and his duty was to submit himself to his king and carry him into the city of Jerusalem. Secondly, for the benefit of the disciples, it was to fulfill prophecy. As we've already mentioned, Matthew mentions uh, Zechariah 9.9, which predicted explicitly that when the Messiah would come, that he would ride into Jerusalem, not on a horse, but on a colt, the foal of a donkey, speaking of his humility and the mission mission for which he'd come. 
Secondly, it fulfills Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 27, in which Gabriel sent from God to give Daniel a vision of the people of Israel concerning their nation, concerning the city of Jerusalem, and concerning their people to the very end of time. Daniel is given the exact date that Messiah would enter Jerusalem and present himself as their long-awaited king. I don't have time to talk about it, get into it, I wish I did, but I just refer you to the book by Sir Arthur Anderson titled The Coming Prince, in which he shows without question that from the going forth the command to build the temple and the exact date that that was given, that you can count for the days and that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem exactly as predicted by Daniel, April 6, 32 AD. An amazing prophecy showing that this book is not the work of man, but it's the work of God. And then finally, this was to show symbolically the mission of Messiah. In other words, as we've already mentioned, a king would normally come into his own city, the city where his throne was, not riding on a donkey, but riding on a horse, a picture of victory, a picture of strength, and a picture of authority. But instead, Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, a picture of humility and peace, because that was his mission at his first advent to bring peace between God and man. And so Jesus at that first triumphant entry came in peace, specifically to make peace between his father and mankind. In fact, you'll remember that at his birth, the angel choir sang to Jesus, or sang of Jesus, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. So at his first triumphant entry, Jesus rode from the Mount of Olives on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, we compare that then to how Jesus will return at the end of the tribulation period, when he puts an end to the reign of the Antichrist and the false prophet and the rebellion of mankind. And we turn to John's record in the Revelation, and if you want to turn there, I'm going to spend a few verses there. So Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, so that you can see it for yourself. And the picture here is that at his return, Jesus will not be riding a donkey in peace, but he will be riding a horse because he's coming to make war. Revelation 19, verse 11. John describing for us what he saw in that heavenly vision of Jesus' return to the earth. Verse 11, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, you might underline and highlight, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, notice he judges and makes war, not peace, but war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And brothers and sisters in Christ, just so you might know, that is a description of you this morning. You will be there in heaven, following Jesus back to the earth. These are the saints that are described in clean, fine, white linen, the imputed righteousness of Christ upon our lives, and we follow him as he comes back to the earth to war against the evil that has taken over. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a contrast. What an irony between those two great events. 
the triumphant entry that we're reading about in Matthew's gospel, and the triumphant return as John records in the Revelation. We note that at the triumphant entry, Jesus was nothing more in terms of the, the esteem of man at that point than a peasant itinerant rabbi. We understand that Jesus was not wearing the, the, the robes and the, and, the, and the wealth and the riches that characterized the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious leaders. No, he was a carpenter, a, a man of the earth in the sense that he was just an hourly labor. He wasn't part of the rich and the royalty and all that. He came in just peasant clothes. He rode on a colt, as we've already described, peacefully into Jerusalem, hailed as the king by the common people, but rejected by the religious leaders, despised by the Romans, and for the most part ignored by the, by the governing officials. But now as we read in Revelation 19, his triumphant return, what a contrast. Jesus will ride into Jerusalem, not on a donkey, but on a white horse, clothed and crowned with royal apparel, hailed as King of kings and Lord of lords by all of the heavenly host to destroy those who rebelled against him with the word of his mouth. And when he comes again, not one person on the planet will miss his arrival. We're told in a number of places in scripture that when Jesus returns, every eye will see him. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people will see him at his return. And so while Jesus came on a donkey on a mission of peace at that first great triumphant entry, when he returns again, he will ride a horse symbolic of the victory that is reserved for the conquering king at his triumphant return. Well, a historical note might be helpful this morning to put this all in perspective and, and how important it is to recognize again the, and compare the contrast between these two great events. During the First World War, General Allenby, a British commanding officer, was tasked with leading the Egyptian expeditionary force, and their job was to drive the Ottoman Turks who were allied with Germany and the other nations in the First World War fighting against the United States and England. And he was tasked with driving the Ottoman Turks out of Egypt, out of the Sinai, out of Lebanon, out of what is today Syria, and what is, what is today Israel. But he was leading a smaller army than the Ottoman Turks had. General Allenby's army was basically a light cavalry unit. They didn't have heavy artillery, they didn't have a lot of weapons, they didn't have, a lot, they didn't have great numbers. And so Allenby found himself outnumbered and outgunned by a superior military represented by the Ottoman Turks. But as he read 1 Samuel 14 in the Bible, he was inspired to follow the example of Jonathan and his armor bearer when they attacked the Philistine garrison and gained a great victory. And Allen, be inspired by the words of God out of 1 Samuel 14 and moved by the Holy Spirit, came up with a new type of warfare in which he took a small, fast group to attack a much larger military group by surprise and by intrigue and thereby overwhelm them. And so the Turkish column that was trying to make its way out of the north back down to Jerusalem, he would attack with surprise during the middle of the night or during the day, and they would just ride through, just rapidly firing in all directions, slaughtering the Turks as they would go, and then just disappear into the wilderness. And it frustrated the Turks, and ultimately on October 30th, Allenby won a decisive battle in the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, <laughs> against the Ottoman Turks. And on December 8th, 1917, he began to advance on and then surround the holy city of Jerusalem. And in the city of Jerusalem was the last garrison of the Turkish military, but also a significant population of both Christians and Jews. 
And the Christian and Jews in Jerusalem began to look at the events and began to believe, hey, it's Hanukkah, Christmas is coming, and a great general has just defeated a Muslim horde in the valley of Armageddon, just as we read about in the Revelation. And so there was, there was suggestions, there was, there was rumor, there was the hope that maybe Allenby was himself the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, finally come to liberate the Jewish people and to establish his kingdom on earth. And on December 11th, the Turks surrendered to General Allenby. And as Allenby led the victorious army through the Jaffa Gate, he and his officers dismounted. And I have a slide just for you to see the actual photograph of the event. Coming up. There we go. Jaffa Gate, December 11th, 1917. So here he is, General Allenby, who led a light cavalry unit. In other words, everyone rides a horse. But he dismounted outside the Jaffa Gate and entered. You'll see just to the other side, Lawrence, as in Lawrence of Arabia. Ah, right. Who, with the Hashemite family, liberated was today Syria. And by the way, just a little insight, Pastor Damien's favorite movie, Lawrence of Arabia. Anyway, walking into the city of Jerusalem. And so people had to ask him. People were wondering why he chose to enter the city, not on horseback, as would be fitting for the liberated Jerusalem. And I quote his response. It would not be fitting to enter this holy city on a horse where my king once rode in on a donkey. Allenby recognized that the honor to enter Jerusalem as a conquering king is reserved for Jesus when he returns as recorded in the Revelation and in Zechariah. And so again, we recognize that at his first advent, Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey from the Mount of Olives at his triumphant return from the Mount of Olives on a great white horse. The third thing we notice in terms of the similarity to compare and contrast is that Jesus was worshiped then and will be worshiped back then and will be worshiped in the future. Look at verses eight and nine back in Matthew 21. Matthew tells us that a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And here we see at Jesus' triumphant entry, as recorded by all four gospel writers, that Jesus was worshipped by the crowds. And again, primarily the people that were worshipping were the common people. The, the Passover pilgrims had come from all over Israel uh, and then taken the same road that Jesus did from Jericho up to Jerusalem to worship. And you'll notice that Matthew tells us that they worshipped him using their clothing, branches, and songs to acknowledge Jesus as king. And each, three, each of these th three things, the clothes, the branches, and the song, uh, songs are significant and an important part of Hebrew worship, and they're instructive to us this morning as believers because they provide a model for how we ought to be worshiping Jesus. And so I want to just look at those very quickly. Their clothes. Again, Matthew tells us they spread their garments before him and began to worship him. Well, the idea here is that, that clothing represents and is symbolic of your position, your title, your, your job in life. There was a time in, in history when you could walk into a city and identify a baker based on my, what they were wearing as distinct from a 
cobbler or a candlestick maker or a wrangler. In other words, everybody had different kinds of clothes that represented what they did, and that was the way it was in the first century. And the idea is that when you remove that outer garment, that picture of who you are, your position in life, what you do, and you lay it before someone, you are acknowledging that person as your king. That is, it's an act of submission to say that whatever I am, whatever I have, I lay before you, I am at your service, King Jesus. By way of example, I think of Jehu as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. You may recall in the story that God sends an anonymous prophet to anoint Jehu, the new king of Israel. And so I'll read to you, after he was anointed, the men, his officers, came and said, what did that crazy prophet say? He said, oh, it's nothing. They said, no, no, what did he say? He said, well, he anointed me and said that I'm the new king of Israel. Here was the response, 2 Kings 9.13. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under Jehu on the top of the stairs, and they blew their trumpets and hailed, Hail, King Jehu. We see a similar example in the story of Elijah and Elisha's record in 2 Kings 2, where the mantle, that cape, that outer cloak that Elijah wore was a picture and a representation of his ministry, that he was a prophet of God unto the people of Israel. And you'll remember there in 2 Kings as Elijah is taken by the chariots of fire into heaven that the one article of clothing that falls back to the earth was the mantle they wore on his shoulders. And now Elisha, who is going to take up the mantle and ministry of Elijah, picked up the mantle, rolled it up, touched the Jordan River, and it split in two, and he walked across on dry ground, just as Elisha had done previously. Elijah, excuse me. Again, that's a picture of the authority, the ministry, the, the job that you do. And so here in Matthew's gospel, as he describes the people taking off their outer garments and laying it on, on the ground before Jesus, they were acknowledging, you are the king, and I am in submission to you. Secondly, Matthew tells us in verse 8 that some of the people cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. John is uh, more careful to identify what kind of branches. In John 12, verse 13, he tells us that they took palm branches, and they went forth to meet him, and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, it's significant that it wasn't just, you know, a myrtle tree or a pine tree or any other kind of tree, but that they used palm branches to worship Jesus. Because in the Hebrew culture, in fact, the culture of antiquity, the palm represented triumph and victory over an enemy. And you can see that in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, or in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, which I'd like to read to you. John tells us, as he looked in heaven, that I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Again, that's a description of you and me in heaven that John saw standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes, listen, and with palm branches in their hands. Again, it's a picture of victory, celebrating the victory of God over evil. Well, by way of illustration, when the Jewish people revolted against Rome in 68 AD, they were initially quite successful, decimating an entire Roman legion. And kind of filled with pride, like we're going to beat Rome for sure, they began to expand and, and, and try to, try to you know, expand the, the territory they had captured. But Rome sent Vespasian and his son Titus, and they raised new legions, and they attacked Israel, and starting in the north, began to decimate the Jewish people. And finally, in 71 AD, they completed their task, and the Jewish rebellion was put under 
Well, to celebrate that victory, Vespasian, who is now the emperor of Rome, had a new coin minted. And on that coin, you can look it up, it's called a Jewish copta. It shows Vespasian seated on a throne with a peasant Jewish woman bowing before him under a palm tree. Because the Jews and the Romans recognized the palm tree as victory. And the coin communicated that Rome had been victorious over rebellious Israel. About 60 years later, the Jews rebelled again, this time following uh, Bar Kokhba, which means son of light, and they believed that he was the Messiah. He wasn't, but they believed that he was. And they led a rebellion, and what they did is they took those same Roman coins that had been stamped by Vespasian with his image, and a peasant Jewish woman, and a palm branch, and they re-stamped them, this time with a seven-branch palm tree to represent Israel's victory over Rome. And the point is that here in Matthew's Gospel, And in John's gospel, as they describe the people who begin to wave palm branches towards Jesus, they're not just worshiping him as their king. They are anticipating his victory over Rome. We remember that the Jewish people, including the disciples, believed that Jesus was there to fulfill those messianic prophecies like Psalm 2, where he would retake the throne of David and establish Israel as the kingdom that ruled the world once again. And of course, they did not understand that Jesus came first to suffer and die, that he might win for himself a citizenship of people who had been redeemed from sin and from Satan who would live with him forever in his new kingdom. Well, thirdly, they worshiped him with song. Verse nine tells us that the people began to sing and shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Very significant because they don't just take any of the psalms to sing to Jesus. They don't just take any kind of new modern lyrics that might have been penned by any of the the worship leaders of that day. Instead, they sing to him from Psalm 118, verse 25. It's a messianic psalm where they declare him to be the Messiah. And where it says, Hosanna, in some of your translations, it may render it this way. Save, we pray, or save us, because that's literally what the Hebrew Hosanna means. And then son of David, they are attributing to him the title of the Messiah, recognizing that the Messiah would come from the lineage of King David. The song also happens to be a benediction that was sung at the Passover meal by every family. And some Bible commentators and students then see the song that was sung here at the triumphant entry 2,000 years ago as a foreshadow of Jesus' passion as the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And so Jesus entered Jerusalem and he was worshiped as king by the common people, but not by everyone. Luke tells us that some of the Pharisees called him from the crowd and they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples because they recognized that they were attributing to Jesus a messianic title and kingship, and the religious leaders rejected Jesus, to which Jesus responded, I tell you that if these should remain silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So Jesus was worshiped as the Messiah at that first triumphant entry, but not by everyone. When Jesus returns at that second triumphant entry, he will begin on the Mount of Olives, he'll ride on a white horse in the city of Jerusalem, and he will be worshiped not just by a few, but by everyone on earth. Zechariah 14, 16 describes it this way. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations, that means everybody living at the end of the tribulation period, which came against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Zechariah, along with a number of other Old Testament prophets, tell us that when Jesus returns, people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue will worship King Jesus. No one will be accepted. Well, I see in this worship, both in the triumphant entry of the past and the triumphant entry that's predicted, a model for you and I in worship. That is, you and I as the church collectively and as Christians individually, we have been given this great privilege and honor of worshiping Jesus. And by the way, when we worship, we are in a sense bringing a little bit of heaven to earth because if you read the description of heaven in the Revelation, they are worshiping. The angels and the saints are worshiping. And when we worship, we're experiencing a foretaste of what heaven will be like. But all that to say that in, in, in some small measure, our worship individually and corporately as a church is a reflection of our love and adoration and understanding of who it is we worship. Just as the people who worshiped Jesus 2,000 years ago did. Again, they used their coat to worship Jesus. And this morning I would ask, when you came into worship, did you surrender your coat that is your position, your status, your job, and your will to King Jesus and recognize you are the king and I am not. And on Sunday mornings and on Sunday evenings when we gather together, it's that reminder that maybe all week I forgot that Jesus is king, but this morning I'm reminded that my proper relationship is I am a servant and you are the king and I give you everything I am and everything I have. Did you worship that way this morning? Number two, they worship with palm branches to acknowledge his victory. When we worship, we're supposed to acknowledge the victory of Christ over Satan and sin so that we might be born again and also the victory that he's given us through the prayers that we brought before him in our entire Christian life to deliver us from evil, to deliver us from life-dominating sins, to intervene in our lives and bring victory in difficult circumstances and situations in our life. When we worship, we're supposed to be acknowledging his power and victory in our lives individually and through us to this world. And then finally, this morning, did you bring a song? That is a testimony of our lips of our love and our surrender to him who is our king and our savior. Friends, that's the purpose of the worship service. Worship is for him. The teaching of God's word is for us. And what I'm about to say, I say with all grace and humility and I pray that if it has application in your life that you receive it, not as from Pastor Paul, but it's from the Lord himself. I have been in churches long enough, been a believer since April 4th, 1976. I got saved the day after Pastor Damien and Karen got married. Didn't know it, now I do. <laughs> and I've been in a lot of different church environments literally all over the world. And I've come to observe that there are people who will literally wait until the worship is over before they enter the sanctuary to hear the teaching of the word. Oh, they might say, you know, I don't like that style of music. Well, I don't like who's leading worship today. Oh, I just don't enjoy that. Oh, I'm, I'm just here for the word. Well, that attitude is communicating that I'm not going to give anything to God, but instead I'm just going to take. Worship is for God. 
Oh, we're blessed in the act of worship. We experience his presence, his power, his peace, all that comes upon us in worship, but it's primarily for him. The worship service is for him, and it prepares our hearts and our minds to receive the word that he is then gonna give to us through the teaching each time we gather. So friends, I would encourage you this morning to allow the Holy Spirit to look at your heart and just between you and him, speak to you with clarity. Are you worshiping as they did 2,000 years ago with your garment, with your palm branch, and with your song as he deserves? Or do you just sit and watch? Worship is not an observation kind of activity. It's participation kind of activity. And I know that there are some of you who think, man, I just, (laughs) Pastor Paul, if you heard me sing, you'd probably move two or three rows away. (laughs) Hey, don't worry about it. You just go ahead and sing. We had a brother here a number of years ago. He's, he's had to move to a, a different community. But uh, for those of us who remember him, uh, let me just say it was, a, it was a difficult sound that came out of his mouth. He, he couldn't carry a tune if you put it in a bucket and packaged it for him. I mean, this guy, he just, he, he just, it was, I couldn't tell, is he actually using words? Is it just like echoes? Is it... And at first I was distracted, then I would look at him and recognize this brother is completely engaged in worshiping his Lord. And it humbled me. And I recognized, brother, you just go for it, man. Go for it. You just worship Jesus the way that he's called you to, whether you have a voice or not. And if you're shy or embarrassed, then you can just whisper the words. But participate. I loved as we look at those words to, to recognize what scripture they come from, Right? In other words, today we're singing, you know, about the, the home that he's prepared for us. I'm thinking John 14, right? We're, we're singing about all these different things. And I'm thinking of the scripture that are tied to because the words we sing are literally lifted off the page of the scripture. And if they're not direct quotes, they're principles that were gathered from the scripture. So when we're singing, we're singing the scripture back to our Lord. Worship is for him. Can I encourage you? Let us not be outdone by the pilgrims that gathered 2,000 years ago to worship Jesus. They only had a partial understanding of who they were worshiping. They didn't have a complete understanding. All they knew was what they had been taught from the Old Testament. They were looking for, for, for Messiah, but not really understanding. They came to suffer and die for our sins. Now we have the complete revelation, the New Testament and the Old. We ought to be worshiping with more enthusiasm, more exuberance than that crowd 2,000 years ago when it's our opportunity to express our love and submission to the King. Well, finally, we notice that Jesus left the Mount of Olives, rode into the city to the worship of the people, and in verse 10 and 11, through the eastern gate. Matthew tells us that when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Galilee. Today in the walls of the city of Jerusalem, you will find eight gates by which you can go in and out of Jerusalem. The eastern gate is the gate that Jesus would have entered into on Palm Sunday, that triumphant entry 2,000 years ago. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that explicitly, but we know it's true because we know from from Josephus that the road from Jericho through that saddle on the Mount of Olives down through the Kidron Valley, there was only one gate that it connected to, the eastern gate. So Jesus would have had to go through that gate. It's alternately called the beautiful gate in the book of Acts, the eternal or everlasting gate in Psalm 24. It's also called historically the golden gate because it was made out of Corinthian bronze that was polished to such a luster that it was as valuable as gold in the first century. And we're told that as the sun would rise over the Mount of Olives in the morning, they would glare off those, those 
huge bronze doors and reflect such brilliant light that you could hardly look at the city. And it truly was a city of light. The Jews today call it the Gate of Mercy. Now, that gate that exists today in the modern city of Jerusalem is not the gate that Jesus entered into. That gate was destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans decimated uh, Jerusalem. The actual gate that that Jesus walked through is about 30 feet below the, the gate that exists today. The gate that exists today was built in the seventh century by Byzantine artisans. Now, we know that in the future that when Jesus returns, he's gonna enter the eastern gate just as he did the first time. I point you to both Acts chapter one where again the angels told the disciples the same Jesus who departed in this manner will return in the same manner back to the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and through the eastern gate. But Ezekiel talks about it, the millennial temple in chapters 43 and 44 and then looks back on the victory of Jesus. Let me read you a few verses. Ezekiel 43 verse four. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. Ezekiel 44, verse one and two. And then he brought me to the outer gate of the sanctuary, Ezekiel tells us, which faces to the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut and it shall not be opened and no man shall enter by it because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. Now it's interesting if you were to go to Jerusalem today and look at that gate that was built in the seventh century by Byzantine artisans, you will see that it is now sealed. And as you leave this morning, when you go into the fellowship hall, turn around, look up and to the left, you'll see a photograph of that Eastern gate and it is sealed. It was sealed in 1541 by the Ottoman ruler, Suleiman I. The reason it was sealed is that the Muslims understood from the Jewish scriptures that when King Messiah returns, he's gonna go through the Eastern Gate. And they thought to themselves, what better way to keep the King of Israel out than by just sealing the gate up? Well, then in the 500 years after Suleiman, the Muslims who occupied that, that Jerusalem over that period of 500 years, they thought, let's, let's make it even a little more difficult for the Messiah. Not only do we have the gate sealed, we're gonna make a spiritual minefield that he can't cross. And so they've created a graveyard in front of the Eastern Gate. Every square inch is filled with a tomb or a grave of some dead Muslim person for the last 500 years. And they figured that if an Orthodox Jew will not cross a grave or a tomb, lest he become unclean, then certainly the Messiah can't get through this graveyard. Well, friends, I'm gonna suggest that brick and mortar and graves are not gonna stop Jesus from entering Jerusalem to the Eastern Gate. In fact, that's exactly what Zechariah tells us in Zechariah 14.4. Let me read it to you again, and now it's going to make more sense. In that day, Zechariah tells us, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two. But he doesn't stop there. He tells us how it's split. He says, from east to west, making a very large valley. He says, half the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. In other words, that gate that is sealed, the graveyards have been put, it's all just destroyed as the mountain moves north and south. And now there's a pathway from Jesus to go from the east, from the Mount of Olives, directly into the Sea of Jerusalem. No grave, no stone will keep him out. God will literally create a path for Jesus to enter the city of Jerusalem. Well, friends, your king is coming again. Palm Sunday then, 
The triumphant entry is more than just a presentation of the past. It's predictive of what is coming. That Jesus, when he returns at the end of the tribulation period, will start his journey to destroy the Antichrist, the false prophet, and those who follow him from the Mount of Olives. He'll ride into Jerusalem, not on a donkey, but on a horse. And he'll be worshipped as king, not just by a few common people, but by every person on planet Earth who is still alive. And he'll go through that eastern gate. But what I want you to take home today and what I want you to remember is this. Jesus comes twice to every individual and every heart and every city. And this morning, if you've accepted his invitation, then you've entered into peace between you and the Father. But if you've not received him in peace, he's coming a second time and he comes in judgment and wrath. And I exhort you this morning, if you don't yet know Jesus, that today is the day that you bend the knee and bow your head and ask him to become your Lord and Savior, lest you have to endure his wrath. My question then to you who do not believe, have you responded to the king? And to those of us who know the king, do we worship him as he deserves, with our cloak, with our palm branch, and with our song? Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we thank you for the incredible testimony of scripture from the Old to the New Testament. Lord, we marvel at how much prophecy you have given your servants to record for us and to marvel at the accuracy, the perfect accuracy at which your word is fulfilled. All of it is a testimony that this book that we call the Bible is the very word of God, inspired by you, breathed out by you, and therefore has the power that you have released through it. Lord, this morning we thank you for what we've learned from the past and what we look forward to in the future. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ first and ask, Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning? If we need to be encouraged, would you encourage us this morning? Lord, if we need to be corrected, would we hear that word of correction, receive it, and rejoice that you love us enough to point us in the right direction? And then, Father, I pray for any who doesn't yet know you. Lord, I ask that right now that you would tap on the door of their heart. I pray for every, any brother, any sister, any person here this morning who doesn't yet know you, that they would sense your presence and that you're tapping on their heart. And that rather than ignore it, they would open the door and they would invite you in, that they would make you their Lord and save you, ask you to forgive them of their sins, to wash them and cleanse them and to set them free from Satan and to write their name in your book of life. And Lord, we know that you'll do it because you promised that you would. And we know that you will because we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me before we're dismissed? Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Paul Lester. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Paul's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.